So we're in week four of six weeks on what theologians call spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. This is the most famous passage in the New Testament on spiritual warfare. Uh, It's put on mugs. It's put on license plate frames. It's put on all sorts of memorabilia for Christians to wear, like a stamp that just says, you know, we're doing spiritual, we're doing warfare against the enemy and stand firm in God. Um, But we don't want to just take it on the nose at face value and at some of the, the assumptions and the caricatures of what that can mean, because that is sometimes meant to be, we're fighting a cultural war, right? We're fighting for the heart of America and, you know, us against them and uh, making heroes out of politicians and demons out of others. That's not what this is talking about. A few of our presuppositions about spiritual warfare to try and normalize this away from the caricature of either cultural battling or horror movie fear-mongering is first that Jesus taught that God's kingdom is not an invasion of Caesar's kingdom. He was the ruler of the kingdom that um, occupied Judea where Jesus walked in the day. But it was an invasion of the spiritual kingdom and dominion of the devil. Now the devil, the devil actually, this is crazy. I learned this recently. Did you know that the devil is actually unnamed in scripture? Devil and Satan are titles, not names. And even Lucifer is a translation of morning star, another title. God doesn't even give the dignity of a name to this figure of the devil. We don't even know if it's a specific person or figure or a collection of spiritual beings. Nonetheless, the devil, Satan, the accuser, has a kingdom that seeks to dehumanize and bring into darkness away from God. And Jesus is bringing light and life into that kingdom. He's bringing his kingdom. Second, it is actual, actually maturity to be aware of what we could call spiritual warfare in your life, not immaturity. One of the most common refrains and feelings that people get when we start to realize that there is spiritual warfare going on in our life is this feeling of, oh my gosh, how immature must I be as a follower of Jesus to be under spiritual warfare, to be giving these opportunities for the enemy, to have uh, places to attack me. It's actually maturity. Because what Satan ultimately wants, what demons ultimately want, is to go undetected. They want to just be able to lead you left and right without actually knowing you're being led, so that you would think that it's actually from you. Third, we do not fear Satan, the devil, adversary, evil spirits. We fear sin. That's what Jesus came to save us from. He came to save us from this way of living apart from God on our own power that is actually uh, the way in which the enemy wants to lead us. Sin is Satan's only power over us. And so we want to learn to follow Jesus in a real way so that we would be able to do what Paul calls us to do, what real spiritual warfare is. Notice, In verse 13, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to what? Resist. Resist 
in the evil day, and having prepared everything to take your stand. This is reiterating what Paul's already said a couple of times in the previous two verses, three verses. What we're called to do as Jesus followers, doing battle in the heavenly realm, is to stand. It's to resist. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not one of going out and fighting cultural battles and hacking through darkness as though we ultimately do violence spiritually so that peace can be brought physically. And it's certainly not physically violent. Jesus flips upside down all the paradigms of the world and where power really lies. And it's actually in meekness and humility and gentleness and love especially in the face of violence, anger, and hatred, that the battle is fought. In today's verses, Paul begins to unpack exactly why we are strong when we practice life with God, when we learn to actually follow Jesus in real ways instead of just saying we believe in Jesus. Did you know? That as you seek to follow Jesus, to stick close to him, to serve him, to listen to him, you are strong. He has everything that you need for your life. Everything. We aren't trying to fight against the cultural disintegration in America, being dragged away from its moral and republic foundations of freedom. We're doing battle against a devil who is trying to drag us away from Jesus. That's his aim. He wants to cut us off from the presence of God, that we would be sapped of the power of God, of love and sacrifice and truth that he wants to display through us. It's like you unplug a powerful utensil, and it's good for nothing. Right? We just got a fan out because it's starting to get hot around here. Air conditioning does not reach our bedrooms in our apartment, and so we need fans. The fan is useless if it's cut off from the power of God, of the power of electricity. (laughs) I guess the power of God through the electricity. Whatever, you get my point. We are intended to be plugged into Jesus on a daily basis so that we could actually be useful to him in the world. So, Paul says, stand, stand firm, resist evil, having prepared everything. That's interesting. Paul says, you have to have actually prepared beforehand in order to stand. There is no stumbling into strength in God. It's not like you can just do whatever you want to do in the mundane boringness of life and then expect suddenly to be able to stand firm when the moment of strong resistance and attack from the enemy comes. We don't just stumble our way into denying our cravings towards temptation that's apart from God. We don't stumble our way into living sacrificially loving. It always requires a kind of self-denial that's been cultivated. And that's what Paul is going to give us with these elements of armor, the full armor of God. We're going to go through three of them today and a few more next week. And here's my goal. My goal, oh, it's David and Mo. Look at that. Great. More joy coming into the room. Get ready. Hey! Welcome, David. Welcome, Mo. 
Good to see you, fellas. Glad you're here. So, here's what the armor is. The armor is not some sort of extra thing that we take up and put on and then like stand to protect God. The armor is the effect of proximity to God on a human being. So when we draw near to Jesus, we are given this armor. This armor is formed on us. Christian maturity is cultivated as the armor. God himself in and through you and me is the armor. That's really important because what we need to see is this is not adding an extra layer onto your Christian life. It's describing the effect of the Christian maturity on your life. Okay? And the goal is that we would stand firm and resist the evil one so that we would be worshipfully useful to Jesus in the world. Like when you have this armor on, you are ready to be his loving conduit in your workplace and in the classroom. You are ready to suffer without returning sin for sin and evil for evil. So, we first need to take up what Paul says, the belt of truth. You see this? We need the belt of truth. Where do I have this? I lost my spot. There we go. Stand. All right, I need this. Look with me at verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, the first element. Notice that this is the very first element. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist. The very first thing that Paul says we need is truth. I find that interesting. Um, what is truth? Jesus himself asked Jesus this. Paul, Pilate himself, asked Jesus this. The Roman governor. Um, what is truth? In our day, truth is relative as postmodernism has borne all of its fruit, right? We've heard the phrase, what's true for you is true for you. Live your truth. Like we're trying to find new ways of expressing this idea that truth is this interior reality that's subjective. Um, who knows the first person who articulated this whole idea of being true to yourself? Anyone know? Who said it? Oh, of course it was Paul, our literary, resident literary uh, master. Shakespeare. Okay, Paul, what, what was said and who said it? Named Polonius? Yeah, Polonius in Hamlet. Okay, this is the first recorded place where anything along the lines of like, what's true for you is true for you, or live your truth. This is what Polonius says in Shakespeare's Hamlet. This above all, 
to thine own self be true. To thine own self be true. It sounds so noble when it's phrased in Old English, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, Polonius is the fool. The fool says to your own self be true. Shakespeare's saying the opposite of what we mean in our day when we say it. Paul highlights the belt of truth because in their day, um, so people wore like a, like a tunic, right? So you'd wear this one flowing garment all the way around. And it wouldn't be great for you to like go out and do anything difficult, right? Because kind of, you can imagine like you step on the front of it, you fall over, you can't run in it, all of that. And so what they would do is they would, they would gird themselves up. Right? First Peter actually uses the language of girding the loins of your mind. There's a really good image for you. Somehow there are loins up here to gird in your mind. So what, what they would do, okay, so just imagine like I'm wearing a tunic here. I would actually take it and wrap it around like a loincloth. And that would be called a belt. It would be underneath your armor. But then you have range of motion. It's not going to fall off. It's not going to fly up in your face if you're standing over a vent like Marilyn Monroe. It's you're like you're ready, okay? So the belt of truth makes you ready to live. It orients you for reality. My favorite definition of truth is by Dallas Willard. He says this, truth reveals reality, and reality can be described as what we humans run into when we are wrong. Isn't that great? Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. It's like you thought you were headed in the right direction, and then life happens. It hits you in the face, right? It's, you're driving 65 on the freeway, and it was actually a 55 because you're in Oregon, and they drive slow there. The cop pulls you over, and you're like, officer, I was going the speed limit. Oh, the speed limit in California. My reality right now is I'm in Oregon, and I get a ticket for going 55. True story. <laughs> and it was actually like 73, okay? Reality is what you are held accountable to in the world you actually live in. The reason truth matters is because Jesus came not only to save us from sin by laying his life down, but to actually educate us on what our reality is constructed like. He's the smartest man who ever lived about what is actually real. And so when you read scripture and Jesus describes what a flourishing life is, um, um, deny yourself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. He's not giving like some wise, sagely perspective. He's actually talking about how the universe is constructed. And so the first element of this armor that Paul outlines is truth. Because apart from having a real understanding of where we live, um, what constitutes a flourishing human being, how we actually get close to God in his presence, what we're called to do. I mean, we can't do anything if we're not oriented properly, right? And can I just say, we live in a moment where we're all confused. Like, what is human good? Who am I supposed to vote for? 
How am I going to flourish and thrive? How do I resist anxiety and depression and fear that cripple me? Jesus helps us when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. You see, reality is not a collection of facts. I love that so many of you are pursuing some level of education, but your education may not correspond exactly with reality. You may be collecting facts, but if Jesus himself is the truth, he's not saying, I am the one who teaches truth. He's saying, I am the truth. And Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 4, 4.21. I get there eventually. The truth is in Jesus. The same letter. Jesus is the truth because reality is relational. You cannot thrive in isolation. You need to be connected to the one who himself is the truth. So that you would come to understand that love is what you were created for. Both to receive and to pass on. And Satan is called a liar. And so... He's trying to get us to leave Jesus, who is the truth, to venture out into lies, which are where darkness is, because we're cut off from the source of power. So as we fasten on the belt of truth, as we walk closely with Jesus, we're oriented properly, so that we can actually know where we stand. So that when the world says, no one has your back, you've got to look out for yourself. So seek pleasure, seek greed, whatever it may be, we could say, no, Jesus has my back. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Seek first the kingdom of God and what? Everything else that you need will be given to you. Trust me. Live with me. That's reality. So, reflect for a moment with me. Think negatively where your deepest anxiety or fear might be right now. You know, worst case scenario in my life would be failing to pass my board exam or whatever it might be. It might be never finding a spouse. Whatever it might be. At bottom there are fears about reality that speak lies to you trying to control how you live. Because at bottom, eventually it always gets down to God cannot, will not, um, ought not look out for you. And when we get near to Jesus, those lies, God willing, begin to peel away. And it's a wrestling and it's hard. Think positively. How do you fill in the blank? I will be truly happy when... Chances are, there's something under there that is a good thing, but when we make it into an ultimate thing to live for, it becomes a lie and seeks to draw us away from standing firm and resisting with this belt of truth. 
telling you simply, every day, reorient yourself. Imagine that as you sleep, you have been reset in your operating system. And the question is, what's, what's you, what are you going to be reset to? What's the lens you're going to pick up? What's the truth you're going to carry about the day? Is it going to be, if, if I don't have my back today, no one will? Is it going to be, if I don't succeed in this task or project, I will be a failure? Is it, I better impress and do whatever I need to on this first date? Or is it resetting to the reality of Jesus every morning? It's putting on the belt of truth. We have to participate with God in the gift that he gives us of his presence. Secondly, Paul mentions the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate covers the front of the chest. The devil isn't only called a liar, but also the accuser. He wants to shoot at your heart. He wants to cripple you here. That your hope, that your sense of of your own okayness would be gone, would be questioned, would crumble. If Satan can get your heart believing you can't be a good person, aren't a good person until you do X and Y and Z, that you need to do something to prove your goodness, he will get you to wander from Jesus. I mean, that's why people vilify and demonize one another. We need to make a total demon out of another person in order to have ourselves up and over them. In inverse, we lift up heroes in that way. And in the gospel, in Jesus, when we get close to him, we're given righteousness. He, right? he, he bore our sin on the cross. And scripture says that he removed sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And sin is simply the, the kind of life that we live apart from God in our own autonomy. So we're given the righteousness of Jesus based on our position. We're given positional righteousness. But that's not the only thing. Uh, we're actually called to live ethically righteous. Much of Jesus' teaching was, was around how to actually live in his kingdom. That we would know God loves you and has forgiven you and nothing can withhold his mercy from you. So that we would actually stumble forward into transformation to be more like him. So there's, there's a theological element of righteousness that Jesus has freely given to us. We're, we're positioned in him. We're united to him freely. But then we're called, we're commanded to actually obey him. It's not this kind of stuffy moral obedience that stifles us. It's actually freedom to really be human, to be flourishing and to have peace and to have joy. Did you know that as you obey Jesus, you're actually transformed by Jesus? And then you actually become one who is a more full, what Scripture calls blessed human as you were created. So this breastplate of righteousness allows us to stand firm against the enemy because we know that his accusations at the end of the day will prove untrue. That he might pull out something that's actually true. Hey, I saw what you did last night. How dare you? 
And we, in mercy, return to God, knowing that he's promised us the righteousness of Jesus to cover us, right? But then we say, Lord, as I lay that at your feet, I actually want to grow and be changed and transformed. So that I could say with the psalmist, God, you're my portion. I promise to keep your word. And we we re-up that commitment to say, Lord, you're the, the one who knows. What is righteousness? It's a key question here, and we need to answer it. Really simply, the best description of the righteous I've found is from an Old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke. This is what he says. Specifically speaking about the Old Testament, Jesus was operating off of, Paul was operating off of. The righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the community. The wicked or the unrighteous are those who disadvantage the community for themselves. The righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the greater good in the community. The unrighteous are those who disadvantage the community for the sake of themselves. You see, righteousness is giving people their due. It's giving God his due. As our creator, we are obliged to him. As fellow human beings, we owe it to one another, to love each other, to serve each other. That's why the logic of the, Old, of the New Testament is, hey, if you have something and you see someone else in need, give it to them. That's functional righteousness. And as we learn to walk it out, we actually are protected to stick close to Jesus with the armor of the breastplate of righteousness. That's why in Scripture it says something to the effect of how peaceful it is to have a clean conscience. That's what it's speaking of, is that your heart is clean before God and people because you know no one has a claim against you that's still standing. That's why Jesus says when you come to the altar in Matthew 6, I believe, and you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, put down the offering to God and go make it right with your brother or your sister so that you would have this breastplate of righteousness on. You wouldn't need to live in fear. So, how is that going? You feel like your accounts with God and people are clean. Um, I want to assure you of mercy. There's nothing that God doesn't already know. He's inviting you to receive the fullness of his presence afresh by taking hold of his promise of mercy. He's the only one who will never shame you for acknowledging wrongs. He's the only one that returns love and patience and mercy always. And by God's grace, we want to be a people who practice reconciliation together, confession when we wrong each other, whether by proactively hurting each other or by abstaining from loving each other when we should have loved each other. And that simply looks like being able to say, hey, I need, I need to acknowledge something to you. When I said or did this, it was, it was harmful. It was sinful. I, I want to ask you to forgive me. I'm sorry. And then on the flip side, what we don't get to do is hold it over them and make them pay us back. Jesus says, forgive your brother or your sister even when they haven't apologized. 
We're not permitted to withhold forgiveness as Christ's followers because we ourselves have received forgiveness. And in pain, we have a place to go to receive comfort in the presence of God. So to wear this armor of righteousness over our hearts as a breastplate so that we can stand secure, we need to be walking out the righteousness of following Jesus practically. Great. Lastly, Ephesians 6.15. And have your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Readiness. As we follow Jesus, we need to own the reality that we don't live for our own agenda anymore. That Jesus' call to, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him is nothing less than whole life surrender. It's saying my dream for where my career was going to be or my station in life was going to be or how much savings I would have for retirement or how, how, what kind of lifestyle I was going to live. All of that is boxed up when we turn to Jesus, placed at his feet, and our hands are open to say, whatever you want to give back to me for my dreams, I will receive from you. And here, all of the fear just rises up in us as we hear this. Oh my gosh, all of my dreams, they're going to be crushed. God's not going to give me what I want. Um, it's going to be miserable as I learn to follow him. Um, it's all about stifling my desire and denying what I really want. And we just imagine that God's a cosmic killjoy when we hear about surrender. But I, I want to re remind you, Jesus is where your life is found. He is only good because he can only be good to you. He cannot be evil to you. He can't be stingy to you. Your Father in heaven is generous with abundance. All he has for you is blessing. But when our hands are around something with a posture of unreadiness, because we're caught up in our own agenda, we don't have hands to receive from him. And so Paul here articulates the gospel as giving us readiness. The first one is a posture of surrender to God, but the second one is the posture of being willing to speak of Jesus and the peace of Jesus to anyone at any time. Friends, I, th I feel this and I know we all feel this. Um, it is, it's not favorable to talk about Jesus out there. Like, it's just not a way that you curry favor. It's not a way that you are viewed as a, a good moral person when you identify as a follower of Jesus or a Christian. They assume all sorts of big, nasty lies about what that must insinuate about you. So Satan wants to stoke fear in us so that we would just close our mouths. We may try and love people really hard and just say, like, ask me why I do it. Ask me why I do it. Uh, Jesus! <laughs> but actually, Jesus is the hope of all people because he's the creator of all people. He's the one for our, whom all people were made. He is what heaven will be based around. And the only people not in heaven are going to be the people who didn't want Jesus. And so they'll just be given what they didn't want. That's what heaven is. That's what hell is. Hell's just separation. 
You know, we have all these pictures of like a torture chamber. Far more often, it's just darkness. It's just being away from the presence of God in Scripture. And what we long to see, maybe you sitting in the audience haven't yet come to Jesus and just said, all right, if this is real, if Jesus is here somehow, some way, prove it to me, and he'll prove it to you. And coworkers and family members and friends, in the speaking of Jesus' name, and in praying for people in Jesus' name, who maybe haven't even yet received him, God is leaning in and giving us assurance that he's where the power lies. So you don't need to be an expert evangelist or apologist, though those are good things to practice so that you can equip other people to be confident. The power lies in the source, which is Jesus. And you hear people describe their testimonies, it's as though a light bulb flipped on and there's nothing that was different about the way that they heard with real ears to hear the voice of Jesus. I thought I was a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. Christian in air quotes. We went to church on Christmas and Easter. I'd heard the name of Jesus a lot. But then the moment he became real to me and I heard his love for me and that he died for me and that he calls me to follow him and find real life there, it was just like a, a light bulb happened. And that's how the Spirit does it. There's a moment where people around us are ready. And we're supposed to simply be ready to speak Jesus' name to pray for people in Jesus' name, to extend the love of Jesus in his name, and actually that's us sticking close to Jesus. If an opportunity for witness comes up and we deny him, we're wandering from him. We're called to identify with him. And so we need readiness. We need to be able to say, Lord, man, I will, I will fumble over my words to speak your name to people and just tell them you love them and that you invite them to find life in you, that nothing that they could have done can hold them from you, and you receive all because of the goodness of your death and resurrection. You're really alive. <laughs> Anyone has access to you. Um, we were prayer walking on, Easter Sun on Palm Sunday, right? We went out, we skipped lunch. And myself and a couple others went up on campus and we prayer walked around and uh, were sharing. And man, I just felt all the tension that an introvert and someone who's not gifted with the gift of evangelism feels when it's about approaching people to invite them to Easter and say, hey, we follow Jesus. Is there any way that we can pray for you? And like eight people had the whole like the minute that you start saying what you're, you know, hey, want to invite you to Easter Sunday, follow Jesus. And it's just like the blinds go up, right? It's as though there's like jaded disconnect that starts to happen. And that happened like eight, eight times. And it just sucks. It's hard. It's hard. But then the last person, um, uh, we'll call her Janelle. Janelle uh, was on the opposite side of the street of us and suddenly couldn't describe it. I saw tons of people. I saw tons of people that we walked by. Didn't feel an urge to go and share with anybody. But for Janelle, just sensed, supposed to go over there, to go across, and I remember walking over saying, Lord, you better do something. Like, I'm doing this, and it was entitled, and I apologized for pride afterwards to him, but walked up, said the same exact things, and suddenly, rather than the blinds going up, a leaning in and an earnestness was there. Like, a hope was there. We got to pray for her, and she opened up, and we invited her, and she started asking questions about the logistics of our community. 
okay? People are ready out there, just like there's a whole lot of people that aren't ready. And the one that's ready makes it all worth it. All of it. So take heart, but have courage. Part of the armor is a readiness to speak Jesus. And to just own the fact, not everyone's ready. But for the ones who are, like imagine if your best friend became a Christ follower with you. How amazing. Imagine if your parents started following Jesus. Like when we actually look at reality, it's so worth it.